Welcome or welcome back to the Sonia Looney Show. Today's episode is one that is very near and dear to my heart. It's about sports psychology and mindset. Here is a snippet from this week's guests, Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. But in terms of confidence and thinking about your own abilities, like we now know that we can even rank order the things that are going to be most potent influences of our confidence. So we know mastery or having success is the number one thing that you can do. And that tells us immediately that you can't get your confidence from a textbook. Simon and Leslie are a power couple and they're super funny to talk to and really fun people. So Leslie Patterson is a three-time world champion in off-road triathlon. She's won Ironman triathlon. She's a professional mountain biker. She's won big mountain bike races like the Whiskey 50. She's a very accomplished athlete and she's also a coach. She founded the company Braveheart Coaching. You can check out the website. That'll be in the show notes. But Leslie is a really, really awesome person to talk to and connect with so definitely check her out and her co-author and husband Simon Marshall is a PhD and he is a former professor in multiple topics in family and preventative medicine as well as a professor of sport and exercise psychology and he's currently working as a performance psychologist for BMC Racing so these guys know their stuff and this year they came out with a book called The Brave Athlete Calm the F Down and Rise to the occasion. Now, I buy a lot of my books on Amazon, and this book was a recommended reading from Amazon, and the title and the cover caught my attention because, number one, I thought it was hilarious, and number two, it really touches on a lot of topics that I regularly speak about and think about and have worked on over the course of my career as a professional athlete and as a human being. And in the book, there's a lot of really, really great topics that are covered to help address body image, confidence, what you call yourself, how you talk to yourself. Some examples are other athletes seem tougher, happier, and more badass than me. I don't think I can. I wish I felt more like an athlete. I keep screwing up. I don't cope with injury well. I feel fat. All of us have had these feelings as athletes and as human beings. And the book is great because it goes into detail about how our brains are functioning in a really fun way that isn't boring to talk about neuroscience. And also it offers really great information on how to get better. It has worksheets. It offers how to support other people who might be going through some of these things around you. So I definitely recommend checking out the book, but I am so happy that I got to speak personally with Simon and Leslie because I think that we got to tease out some of the other topics in this book that I personally wanted to discuss because I know that other people and I have had discussions about these. So definitely check out their book and I hope you guys enjoy the show today. But first, I just wanted to mention the Patreon page for the podcast. Thank you so much for those of you who are currently supporting the show. I think there are 16 people who are supporting my work financially. And what the financial contribution does, it's a crowdfunding website, is I am applying that towards paying my audio producer who helps me every single week get these awesome shows out to you guys. So definitely check out the show notes or go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show if you're interested in supporting my work. But let's get into it. Here is Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson with The Brave Athlete. How are you guys doing? Great. Hey. We're really good. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. Today, I, so I live in British Columbia, and today is the first sunny blue sky day in like three weeks. So I am stoked today. Oh. <laughs> uh, and is your season finished now, Sonia? Yeah, I just finished. I did. A, I do mostly stage racing, uh, mountain bike stage yeah. racing. So my last yeah. one was Brazil Ride, and that ended about three weeks ago. So finally feeling normal again and stoked to oh. just have a little bit of time off. <laughs> That's a long year for you, too. Yeah, well, that's good. I, I like it, though. But yeah, I'm soaked about your guys's book. It was funny because a lot of these topics, I'm by no means like a psychologist or a professional, but I write about a lot of the things that you guys talk about in your book. So I thought like, this is gonna be awesome if I could get these guys on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's really nice to speak to someone who also is an accomplished athlete themselves, because you we know that you get it, you know, you've experienced a lot of the stuff yourself as well. Leslie, I was actually at the Whiskey 50 um, the year you won it, or maybe you've won it multiple years. Oh, but... my gosh. No, just once. Oh, how funny. Were you racing that year? I was racing, yeah. And I was like, dang, that because you were going up when I was still coming down. And I was like, wow, that girl is incredible. And I, ah! yeah. And it's funny because that was kind of the last that I really had thought, heard of you because I haven't been at a lot of the same races as you. And then I pick up this book and was like, I think this is the same girl that won the Whiskey 50 that year. How funny. Yeah, that was a, that was a great year for me. You know, I won a lot of different races and things and, and just had a great year and uh, actually kind of got pretty sick and injured after that and spent most of 2014 out. So, uh, yeah, that was it was like, you know, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. So this book certainly uh, has been written from a lot of different experiences. Yeah, and how's your racing going now? Like, how did you balance writing the book and, and racing and training? Yeah, you know, it's tough. I mean, Cy did uh, the majority of the writing, if not all the writing. <laughs> he's laughing at me because <laughs> um, he's he's really the writer when it comes to that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, I think in terms of balancing all of the, the coaching and all of the, the book work, it's, it's definitely tough, you know. And I think by nature, we're such A-driven personalities, and so we never give ourselves a break. And I don't mean just like a break as in a holiday. I just mean like cut ourselves some slack. So I'm sort of, I'm learning to try and sort of enjoy what I've achieved and, and not feel like I have to be on the go the whole time. So I think when you, you sort of balance a lot of stuff, you also have to have some time out from that and, and be and, and enjoy it. So I, I'd say that that's how I'm coping with it. Yeah, and it's so hard because everybody always asks you, well, what's next? Like, you've you've done this, and, and for our audience, you're, totally. you're a three-time, is it ex-Terra World Champion? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, like, you've accomplished so much in your life, and people are just used to you accomplishing things, and, and we get addicted right. to accomplishing things. So when someone asks you that question, well, what's next, and you don't have something big planned, it feels kind of weird. Right. <laughs> No, it does. And I think, you know, I've kind of, I'm constantly on a learning curve with that. And I work with a lot of kind of functional medicine practitioners. And, you know, I'm a lot into health, given my background with Lyme disease and, and sort of a lot of different issues. And so coming to a place where you're trying to understand, you know, what it means to be healthy, right? And what it means to be happy as well. And I think that in my experience, you know, all of the success I had in sport, has been and, and will always be an amazing thing but you know we're horizon seekers and so you know we're always looking for that next thing so in that regard I'm not sure if you can't learn to sort of be happy regardless of almost where you're at you know I think then you spend your life striving and, and never being content yeah for sure <laughs> 
it's so funny. It's like looking in the mirror, hearing you talk. And on my phone, actually, I have all these different topics that I want to write, write some of my newsletters about. And the one that keeps popping up that I haven't addressed yet is what does it mean to be healthy? And then you just said that. Right. So I thought that was really funny. <laughs> I swear to God, because people look at me sometimes when I'm in my sort of peak fitness and I'm at my leanest and, and all of that, which really is actually very unhealthy you know all these women especially are like oh my god you look so amazing I wish I had legs like you there's all this positive reinforcement around that type of sort of status if you will and and similarly you know we're always commending people that are busy and you know they don't have any time to do this and that and achieving all this stuff and you're just like well wait a minute like we've kind of got this ass backwards you know totally Um, yeah, I tell you, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated in that stuff as I, as I get on. But anyway, we could talk about that's a whole other topic. <laughs> well, we are going to talk about that. But like, so let's tell the audience, you guys both wrote a book this year. Did it come out this year? It did. Yeah. I'm like, which year are we in? <laughs> yeah, May. Um, May. Yeah, it came out in May. Um, and in fact, our audio book comes out. Tomorrow. Uh, no, oh, tomorrow. Well, well, oh, awesome. Tomorrow. November, November yeah, not, 14th. Not, yeah. So, um yeah, it's been a whirlwind since, you know, we've been on a, a bit of a book tour sort of around the races that I've done, but also other places. In fact, we're in Florida right now doing a book tour, uh, heading up some different places and, and talking to people and mingling with folks that have read it already or haven't heard about it and are intrigued. Um, and that's been a really fun, fun thing to do. Yeah, so for the book is called The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down, <laughs> which I love yeah. it. Yeah, well, not everyone loves it, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I think we, we had a, a letter of apology in USA Triathlon. Uh, you know, they were apologizing for advertising our book in their magazine, which I guess some of the readers did not find appropriate. So that was really quite amusing. Yeah, that was something I was going to actually ask you guys about. And Simon, we need we need to hear from you as well. But I wanted to ask you guys the decision to use expletives in your book, because that's something I've actually incorporated into my branding as well. Like I have these socks that they're the effing magical unicorn socks. And I made these other socks that say do epic shit. So we're in a society where a lot of people really think it's funny, but other people get really offended by it. So how did you decide to go that route? Yeah, I think that it's interesting, isn't it? Our relationship with uh, taboo language and, you know, we're both British, I'm English and Leslie's Scottish and we come from, a country and maybe not even just a country but a family and our immediate friends where swearing has become is sort of an integral part of communication not gratuitous <laughs> for the sake of it swearing but you know we lean into words for meaning and and it's interesting because some of the research on swearing how we use it and when we use it and what it means is is quite interesting and one of the findings is that contrary to what you might think is that you know people who swear a lot don't have smaller vocabularies and aren't using it because they don't have replace adequate number of replacement words to use it and so on. So it's not necessarily a sign of just, you know, a limited and stunted vocabulary. And the other thing for us is that sport is an intensely emotional experience, right? So we have the, you can feel the highs and lows hero to zero all within a matter of minutes or hours, you know, and, and when we speak to real athletes, meaning real humans with who live normal lives and stuff, they all swear. So everyone that we know swears and again, to different extent. And, and I think it creates such, uh, they're so, so particularly the F word in particular is a powerful word. And we, there are psychological studies now to show that when you repeat it during pain, it reduces that perception of pain. Oh, really? So, 
Yeah, so it has some like <laughs> analgesic property to it or coping <laughs> skill property to it. And the, well, it's not so much the word itself; it's the, what we associate with that word. So, and in and when we come to sport, and particularly for the title of our book, we were really interested because in the fact that you know, for many of us who aren't doing this for a living, or most of us who aren't doing this for a living, and particularly if you're a multi-sport athlete, so for triathletes, we're especially prone to this, but most endurance athletes, I'm sure it's athletes generally, but our world is endurance sport, is that we get, we've convinced ourselves somehow that things are life and death, that, you know, that it matters so much that we get in ourselves into these, you know, heightened states, whether it's agonizing despair or in some instances, depressive moments. And and really much of what we say and we conclude in the book is, listen, we all need to take a step back. We take life too seriously. And particularly if it's a recreation and activity we should be doing for fun, doesn't mean to say that there are moments that you don't take seriously, but we need do need to calm the F down a little bit and put things in perspective because there are people who are, are dealing with very traumatic and, and traumatic things that really do mean something in the big scheme of things, not just whether, how you place in your local turkey trot or, <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. So it was a kind of a combined message of we take ourselves too seriously. We all could do with calming ourselves down. And the fact that real people say this in the sorts of environments that we're in. So we're not going to kind of excuse that. Cool. Yes. Like in the scheme of things, you mentioned a turkey trot. And I always think this to myself, if I'm in a race and I start getting all worked up, I tell myself, look, like this is a tiny blip on the scale of what's happening in the universe. And the only person that this really matters to is me. So I just need to calm the F down. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, Again, you know, all of that stuff is super valid, but it's, you know, sometimes these things are very important to people. And I think it's knuckling down on why that is. So it's really investigating why this is so important to you, because as much as we tell people, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, you do. And so you have to get to the nitty gritty of why that is, whether it's to do with your athletic identity, whether it's to do with your body image issues, whether it's to do with, you know, your confidence or, you know, all those kinds of things. And so we sort of delve into a lot of that in the book as well. So it's not just, uh, you know, the simple, hey, just get on with it or you'll be all right or don't worry about it or put things in perspective. That comes alongside everything else, I guess. Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about some of the chapters in more detail. I have a couple of them in mind. And one of them is the chapter on self-confidence, because as athletes, even as professional athletes, we've all had our journey of feeling insecure and feeling like we need to prove something. And that affects how we show up in our daily life, in our race, how we treat other people. And the journey of becoming a more confident and self-aware person and athlete And everybody's in a different spot and you never become fully self-confident. You're always going to be working on that. So what's a good starting point for people and to think about how they can become more comfortable in their own skin and where they can get their self-worth from? Like, this is a big topic and a big question, but... I'd love for you guys to elaborate on that a little bit. I know, I know. Well, it's funny because self-confidence or what we often talk about, the bigger term of our self-judgment system and self-confidence is just one way that we judge ourselves about our abilities and what we think is possible or, or what we can do. 
So what we often say is that not all issues that you think might be confidence related actually are. And psychologists differentiate between different types of our self-judgments of which self-confidence is just one. And so we use this analogy of a tree and we call it the me tree of your self-judgment system. And, and each part of the tree represents a different type of judgment that you have a bit of a form of a judgment that you have about yourself of which confidence is just one. So for example, the roots of your tree, what we consider similar to what psychologists call your self-worth. And your self-worth is really the thoughts and beliefs you have about your value as a human being, as a person, whether you're lovable, whether your life is worth something. And, and the roots are buried under the earth for good reason, right? We don't want them to be affected by the day-to-day -day wind of life, you know, the stuff that can sway us and make us feel suddenly not worthy. And these roots really start in childhood about how we grow up, how we're exposed, how we're encouraged, how we're praised, and so on. And many people grow up with roots exposed to the earth. So in other words, that their self-worth, fundamental beliefs about themselves do get influenced by things that people say to them or that things happening to them in their lives. And what we're always trying to do is to make sure our roots are really firmly covered up so that they're not prone to blowing in the wind and influenced by these little things. But above the, above the roots is what we consider to be your self-esteem. And self-esteem, um, sort of unlike your self-worth, is now we're above the ground. So is more influenced by our environment and things that we do face on a day-to-day -day basis. And then as we go into the branches, we consider that to be our self-confidence and so on. So as we filter right to the parts of the leaves, what psychologists call self-efficacy, and self-efficacy is really like a very specific form of self-confidence. And so, for example, if you're a mountain biker, and you're doing short, fast races, and you think, you know, I'm really not great at the first sort of quarter mile, that explosive off the start, that's just not the way my I feel comfortable with. It might be skills, it might be training, physiology, what have you. So you might have really low self-efficacy to be a quick starter, but your overall confidence as a mountain biker might be really great. In fact, you might have really high self-efficacy for technical descents, or you might have low self-efficacy for long, slow climbs. And so we can break up our what we generally consider confidence into very task and situation specific forms of that. So when athletes come to us and say, or, or coaches or partners of athletes say, oh, they need, just need more self-belief or they just don't, they just have got no confidence in their abilities or you've got to figure out where on the me tree, you know, the problem actually lies because no amount of giving someone uh, trying to address someone's self-efficacy or self-confidence is really going to help if their fundamental problem is with their self-worth. And I'll give you an example. So one of the most robust ways or the most potent ways to build confidence and self-efficacy, in fact, uh, self-confidence being a more general version of self-efficacy, is to um, have to experience success. So the best way that you can have success is to feel as though that you've mastered something or you've actually been successful. So this is why we set small manageable goals. So it's not something, you know, you're not setting something so ambitious that you always are experiencing failure. So you do get a chance to feel successful. But if someone is coming to you and saying, I don't have confidence and you give them you know, a smaller or an easier task and they still either don't meet or they still don't feel successful. So you give them an even easier task and you keep going until they're basically doing something that is so easy or so simple. You're thinking, why aren't you getting it? Why isn't this making you feel any better? 
It's because if there's a self-worth problem, then all the information that all the feedback they get from being given easier and easier tasks is, oh my God, they now think I'm so useless that they're giving me these ridiculous tasks. I therefore, I really can't be that good at all. I'm certainly not very talented and on and on it goes, or it might just go down as far as the self-esteem trunk. So the first point is to really try and figure out where the self-judgment system problem lies. And so you can start by like backing into it. So if you think about a very specific thing that you don't feel very confident about and say, look, I've, I'm a, I come from a cycling background, but Leslie's kind of dragged me kicking and screaming into triathlon and I don't really feel that confident about my swimming. And I say, okay, let's start with that. What is it about swimming I don't feel confident about? Well, it's not, so, it might not at the start I'm fine with, but it might be anything over a thousand meters. I just, my endurance and whatever. Do I feel confident as a triathlete? Well, yeah, I do. And do I, any of these issues about confidence for endurance, do they filter into my run or my bike? No, not really. It's just about the swim. I know that it's likely a self-efficacy problem, not a confidence. And the strategies and the techniques we give someone really do differ depending on whether it's an efficacy, confidence, esteem, or self-worth problem. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it seems that the self-worth problem would be the hardest one to solve because that is the base that everything is built on. And like, how do you even address that? So you mentioned with confidence, you give people tasks that they can work at so that they feel like they're successful at something. But if someone thinks that they're worth nothing, how do you even start that process of feeling like you're worth something? It's really difficult. And in fact, that's really when specialized help is needed because their roots, because they've been there a long time, they've taken many years to develop, is that they fundamentally represent very ingrained thoughts and feelings you have about yourself. And really, you know, that's where we say psychologists can help, clinical psychologists can help, psychotherapists can help, counselors can help. There are some things that you can do if it's a self-esteem or self-confidence issue, but really other than sort of quite clinical specialized help for overcoming and finally transitioning into more healthy beliefs about yourself. It's very difficult. And this is why, I mean, there's a whole self, you know, there's a whole self-help industry geared towards that. But we now know that it's very difficult to teach yourself that because the paradox of all self-help psychology is that you're trying to fix the problem with the thing that's the problem, right? You're using your own brain to fix <laughs> the problems in your own brain. And so it, it colors everything that you see. So when you even when we ask people to come up with statements to, in the traditional sort of, you know, OK, how do we counter this negative thought? And what could you say in in return that's positive oriented and that has a more affirmative sort of self belief affirming quality to it? People with low self-worth aren't even able to do that because they're all of the things that they think of are still mired in that fundamental belief system. Or they just say, you know, I couldn't, I sat there for hours and I just couldn't come with any, come up with anything. So that's where guidance to do that, to go through that process can help. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in destigmatizing seeing psychologists or seeing psychotherapists. And it's, if you haven't had an opportunity to have some psychotherapy or psychology, it's a really enjoy, it's, it's kind of a mental massage in a way, right? You get to learn about yourself. You get to ask, try and answer questions that you struggled with and you come out with more self-awareness. And some of it might not necessarily translate into, you know, asking for a job raise that you've wanted and you didn't feel the comment, but, but having more self-awareness about what makes you tick can never be a bad thing for most people. And so self-awareness being the cornerstone of changing most things is a kind of a good starting point for athletes and non-athletes alike. 
Definitely. And I love the confidence builds confidence scenario because I say a lot that the more you do, the more that you feel you're capable of doing. And in my life personally, the more challenging things I've taken on and been successful at, the more it makes me feel like I can do anything. So, you know, previously, maybe somebody feels like, oh, well, I can't do a race or I can't do that or that distance is too long. So they do a shorter distance and then they start building up their confidence to say, well, if I can race my mountain bike 50 miles, well, for sure I can do it 100 miles. And well, if I can race my mountain bike 100 miles, I can do it for three days. And it's just really interesting how that actually in your brain, I'm sure that there is, maybe you can elaborate more. There's maybe there's an actual physical change that happens in your brain that allows you to feel that way. Well, well, there are certainly physical changes that are happening in your brain when you get to physically experience things, uh, particularly when you're in situations that we might consider to be, you know, adversity or mental toughness situations where we think about quitting, but we persist. And we know that lots of biochemical and neural changes, ner- changes to your nerves and the synapses and happen in your brain. Your brain's physically changing all the time in response to those. And we've only just known that in the last sort of 10 or 15 years because of the way that we can measure studies done in in neuroscience and they talk about this concept of neuroplasticity that your brain is constantly changing but in terms of confidence and thinking about your own abilities like we now know that we can even rank order the things that are going to be most potent influences of our confidence so we know mastery or having success is the number one thing that you can do and that tells us immediately that you can't get your confidence from a textbook because no amount of learning and reading about things can help you experience mastery unless the thing that you don't have confidence is in your ability to read and finish a book. But generally, you know, having small incremental goals is absolutely essential. But the second most potent thing, and psychologists have, you know, really awkward names and phrases for quite simple concepts. But one of them is called having a vicarious experience. So this is the second most potent thing is like seeing other people similar to you achieve the same thing that you want to do. So for example, if you don't, if you want to ride, you know, if you say that you want to start mountain bike racing, but you don't really feel comfortable racing yet, you've done a lot of, you love training or you love riding socially or recreationally, but the thought of racing and even the thought of doing a little sprint race or a short evening race is still too terrifying or you just don't feel you have the confidence a vicarious experience is simply going to watch one so we often recommend that the first port of call for people who have confidence or self-advocacy issues about very specific things is we say i don't want you to do that thing at all yet i just simply i'm going to put it in your diary your training program i want you to go and watch this event or it might be if you're a triathlete you know you go and watch a master's swim session and triathletes who don't come from swing backgrounds are typically terrified of joining in on a on a, a competitive swim group so what you need to do is to try and think of ways that you can get some of the same like you can build some of that mastery by looking at other people said well if they can do it or i never realized that when i went to these races there were people who i can tell are probably slower than me and they're out there and they're finishing and they're not like whatever happens to be so vicarious experience is another really powerful a driver of our confidence. And so we can simply come up with a little battery of things that we can do to boost confidence, but they're in order of how important or critical they are to building it. So that's one of the strategies that we use. Yeah. So this brings me to the question of social media, because social comparison is also in your book. 
and living vicariously through others can be accomplished on social media, but the other end of the spectrum can happen as well, where you see all these people doing all these things and you're not, and then you start feeling like you're not enough or you're not doing enough. Where does the living vicariously through watching somebody else, where is the line of this is helping me versus, wow, this really isn't helping me anymore? I know, right? Well, here's the, the funny thing, you know, when you're watching and take the the race, the mountain bike racing example. And so when I get someone to go and watch a race, you're watching real life. You're watching real people struggle with a real race on a real day with all of the, you know, the warts and all. You're seeing people <laughs> puncture and crash and survive and run and sweat and sometimes cry. And all but what you're, but what, exactly. But what you're seeing, the snot, but what, what you're, you're seeing on social media is anything but that. What you're watching on social media is a highly curated version of reality. It's a performance that people give on social media. And in fact, there's, you know, it's now a field of study. We're not a field of study, but a, a kind of an area that's attracted a lot of research attention by cognitive psychologists, social psychologists, and sociologists about our relationship with social media. And we know, for example, that when the people spend a lot of time thinking about what they post, how they post it, when they post it. And even when you ask people that, do you do this? And they'll say, oh, no, I just do that. We know that when we study them, that's not true. They do. And some of it might be subconscious. You know, you get into habits and routines. You don't really put much conscious thought into it. But people spend a lot of time curating the messages that they have that you're conveying about yourself. And psychologists use the term impression management to describe this, not just in social media, but generally. And impression management is simply a phrase to say that we're constantly, and it's a natural thing of the human brain to do, we're constantly trying to manipulate people's interpretation of us so that we're seen to be more to smarter, more attractive, more fun-loving, you know, all the things that are considered socially and culturally to be valued by society. And there's nothing wrong or narcissistic about that. We all do it. Even people who tell you they don't do it, they do. And so social and Facebook and Instagram is kind of soft impression management software, right? Because it gives us a chance to broadcast to the world a version of ourselves that we want people to see. And again, it's not that athletes go on there and sort of lie about the races or the rides that they've done, or they're posting a screen capture of their Garmin of this legendary ride. <laughs> We're not saying they haven't where they haven't done that. But you better believe that behind the one great event or race or training thing that you're seeing a snapshot of, there are 10 more behind it that are snotty, disorganized failures. <laughs> and, and often what we found is that, you know, the more perfect the picture they sell you, the story, the, usually the worse that problem is. Because there's a reason that people need to promote an even uh, more competent, more successful much faster version of themselves is they fundamentally worry that they don't have that competence. And so there is probably some compensation going on there as well. So the first thing we try and get athletes to do is to recognize that not to unplug from social media, unless you really are having some problems with it, is to say, listen, what you're seeing is a highlight reel, the Heisman trophy of someone's life. And so don't believe all that you see and take time to get to either to get to know those people or for your own broad 
podcast channel is start to admit some or show some of your moments where you've been vulnerable or weak or not being able to do things. And it fights against every fiber in our body that why would I want to show everyone things that I feel as I failed that? But you'll actually find that people become more trusting, build stronger relationships with you and have better communication because ultimately we all bond on on weaknesses and vulnerabilities. We don't bond on strengths. And that's really what Facebook is. It's it's a way to show your strengths. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do think that somebody that posts on social media, I personally try to take response. I mean, of course, it's a highlight reel of all my cool pictures where I look badass and strong and all those things. But I think it's important for everybody to write out whenever they're not feeling perfect. Like I did one yesterday saying how I don't feel like I'm good enough most of the time. But I think it's hard for people to admit that online in a public forum because it, it does make you vulnerable. And in media too, when people write an article about something where they're admitting something about themselves that's hard to accept and where you're open to the judgment of others, that has actually been way more powerful than just saying, oh, like life is a perfect picture and everything yeah. is great all the time. And in fact, this is even like the curse of the coach athlete. And we've experienced this a lot. Like coaches who are also still competing as athletes, they don't often want, they feel, often feel paralyzed by the fact they have to deliver a great performance because otherwise their athletes are going to say, well, they're not as good as I thought they were going to be. And therefore, <laughs> you know, do I question them as a coach? In actual fact, what we encourage coaches to do is to talk about that very insecurity with their athletes, whether it, and it can be used as kind of a teachable moment. It doesn't, doesn't have to be sort of an outpouring of, oh, I worried I want your approval or that kind of stuff. It could just be, listen, I also worry that I'm not, that if I have a bad race, that my athletes are not going to think I'm a worthy coach enough. And that's a way that you admit a vulnerability and a weakness. And you'll find that your athletes respond to you in a far different way than you expected them to. Also as well, you know, it gets really difficult being a professional athlete or someone with a business or, you know, where you're selling a service and you're ad admitting weakness, fault, injury, illness, because you're scared that contracts aren't going to get renewed or business isn't going to come your way. You know, there's a whole host of things. So, you know, unfortunately, Facebook also or social media outlets also serve as promotional <laughs> pieces, you know, if you have a business that is in that sector. So, you know, it definitely gets difficult, you know, certainly from a professional athlete angle, rather than just sort of a person. And even even as a coach, you know, here I am talking about the fact that I've got a, a flipping stress fracture and you're thinking, well, you know, you'd think I'd know better. <laughs> but uh, you know, again, as Simon said, I try and talk to my athletes about my experience. And that's that's always my first uh, port of call as a coach is to have empathy and to really express to my athletes what I'm going through, what I've been through and how maybe I can help them and how they can help me. And so you know, essentially you're going on this journey. And I think that's probably why I'm a successful coach or, or have a good group of athletes is because I do that. And probably not enough coaches do that themselves. You know, they see coaching as a, a kind of power hierarchy where they essentially kind of, in a way, talk down to their athletes, you know, and well, I know better than you. So therefore I can't sort of admit that actually I got that wrong or maybe we should do something different or what have you. Well, you need to have all the answers. Feeling right. compelled as though you need to have all the answers. And if I don't, I'm somehow less of a coach. And being able to say, you know, I don't know, we need, I need to ask someone or someone has more experience in that than I do to help. And this comes back to coaching, being a facilitator, right, rather than a prescriber. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically like a common theme of everything that we've already talked about and everything that we will talk about 
is what other people think of what you're saying and what you're doing and how that's going to affect you, whether it be professionally or personally or as a coach. And it's hard to accept that you're a human being sometimes. And that like, I work with a sports psychologist and I started about nine months ago. And that's a common thing she's told me repeatedly is you're a human being. And my husband and I actually use that on each other too, because we all have these expectations of ourselves or of what we think other people should think about us. And I think just by talking about it, by saying, look, I make mistakes, I'm not perfect all the time. And even with myself, I'm not the, maybe sometimes I make mistakes coaching myself and I am a coach. Like, I I think that that makes you more trustworthy. It does. Yeah. It's very empowering as well. It's an empowering journey to go on uh, by kind of putting your hands up and saying, listen, I've got more to learn. I'm making mistakes. You know, I've got fear, I've got doubts, but I'm prepared to work at them and to learn and to grow. Um, yeah. And, and I think to emphasize that feeling under pressure or feeling as though that you care about what other people think, to expect those things to magically disappear or to expect that I'm a mentally tough athlete when I don't care about those things is, is just so naive as well. And that we've never met anyone that's able to do that. Of course we care because we've all kind of been designed with the same piece of three pound kit on our shoulders and parts of our brain are going to feed us information. And we often talk about the limbic system and the, or the chimp brain as we, as we call it and others have called it too, that is feeding us emotions to try and get us to make a decision about things that we do in life or situations we put in ourselves to minimize the chance that we'll either feel embarrassed uh, or humiliated or look to shown to be inadequate or, or even, you know, risk life. So our brain is wired to protect us from those harms, psychological or physical. So we're going to get these very powerful emotions that we'll experience as feelings and impressions that we have about situations and people and interactions that are going to try and as to convince us to walk away, to hide, to not bother, to self-sabotage, because the part of your brain doesn't really know that the outcomes or what's actually at stake is really relatively trivial now because that part of our brain hasn't done much evolving over the past few million years. It still thinks that life is actually on the line. So one of the things that we try and have athletes do is to say, look, you're going to have these feelings that you don't want, and that's perfectly normal. Uh, don't believe a lot of the, you know, the self-help literature in positive psychology that's going to, you know, expunge all negativity and say, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and I'm a winner. I know I can. I'm strong. I'm that but never works either. We know it doesn't. So what we have to do is learn to manage the voices that we have in our head or the little sort of little uh, uh, whispers about worry about whether we have the right skills or we feel a bit of an imposter or a fraud. And how do we manage those and recognize that it's entirely human to have that and learn to jump anyway, right? We go hand in hand with our fears rather than jump without fear because no one really needs to do that. You're, you probably have bigger problems if you're not feeling fear prior or anxiety prior to a race. So, but you can learn to enjoy the sport with those and embrace them anyway, but it takes a special set of, uh, of skills and tools to be able to do that. Absolutely. I mean, mental toughness is being able to have those feelings and then being able to sit with them and accept them and keep going instead of letting those things control you. Right, exactly. So my question is like, you always hear people say, oh, well, who cares what people think? And uh, a person I can think of who's a a big celebrity who says this all the time is Gary Vaynerchuk. He's always like, 
I don't care what people think about me. I, I, I don't care at all. And I actually completely disagree that he doesn't care what people think about him. And I think when people say that repeatedly, they actually really care what people think about them. And right. pe people demonize this fact that, oh, well, if you care what other people think about you, then you're weak or you're bad. But I don't think it's a bad thing to care what other people think about. No, I don't know. Absolutely not. And if you think about impression management, about we're trying to persuade other people to have a certain opinion or view or thoughts about us. And for for people like uh, uh, Gary, or Prof there are many people out there part who, who, who report feeling the same thing, I would argue that his impression management is trying to get people to believe that he doesn't care about stuff, right? So that is impression management. He's doing that. I don't believe that he actually doesn't care because it, it, that would mean that he doesn't have a human brain or that he doesn't, he's not wired or has the same biochemistry as everyone else. So sure, people have that or believe those things to different degrees, but I don't believe anybody who tells me that they don't care about other people's feelings or they're not able or they, you know, that's not going to stop them from doing it. That, that's simply not true. It's the question of how do we act anyway, despite those things. And in some people's case where a brand is built on not really caring or not looking as though I give a crap, that is part of their brand, which is part of their impression management strategy. Yeah, and it's funny, I, I haven't finished reading the book yet, but Mark Madison wrote the book, The Soul Art of Not Giving an F, an F. Again, another awesome cuss word in the, the <laughs> title, but that's about something a bit different. But it is like, it, it's hard to know who to listen to and who not to. If, if you do care what other people think, whose opinion matters and whose doesn't. And being able to differentiate that, I think, is really challenging. Right. And I think this also comes to, you know, I'm a, there's a great book by a woman called Kim Scott, who was an executive at Google and, and Yahoo. And, and she wrote a book called Radical Candor. I don't know if you've heard of that book. It came out this year and it's a fantastic insight in, it's a communication strategy. Well, it's actually Bill, the book is a leadership strategy about how to manage people, but it's really a book about the psychology of communication, even though it's not billed as that. But the wonderful thing about this book is that the model of radical candor says that, you know, there are two elements to receiving information that make us listen to information or feedback and whether we get annoyed by it or reject it or take it on board. And one of those is its directness. So, you know, do I actually know what they're telling me or is this kind of, I'm trying to read between the lines and is there, is that a back offhanded or backhanded comment or criticism? And so the directness is really important to understanding it. But the, the, big piece of that is the compassion that we feel that someone has for us as a person. So if you're getting very direct feedback from someone who you believe doesn't really give a shit about you, then it's going to be come across as an arrogant comment, right? And likewise, if someone is only very compassionate about you, but never tells you the truth, then they're kind of ruining you with being overly sympathetic. And you never really know, you know, it's the classic, you have a breakup and you find out your friends always hated your ex-partner. Well, no one told me that. Why didn't anyone tell me that at the time? You know, but the sweet spot is to be compassionate and direct and you, and it takes time to build that relationship up so that someone lets you do that. Or you have that kind of relationship with them. And that's the, I guess that's the sweet spot of coaching as well. You have to earn the right to give direct feedback for it to work. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I, I want to move on just a little bit to back to where we started talking about Leslie, you mentioned that Whenever you're at your fittest and you're super ripped and you're like 
everybody looks at you and is like, wow, she's so healthy. I want to, I want to look like that. And everybody's comparing themselves to what you look like. So I want to talk about body image, body shaming, because this is a huge problem, especially in endurance sports where people think you're better if you're skinny. And it's just crazy. The obsession, especially in cycling for being skinny and the pressure that we all feel. So I'd love to open up that can of worms. You know, I think in, you know, weight does play a role in performance. There's no doubt about it when you're talking about running, when you're talking about climbing, uh, but it's very specific elements of endurance sport. And it's also very specific to the individual person. You know, I lost several pounds in weight and, and lost three world championships. I mean, sorry, won three world championships. Well, you know, that's not a coincidence either. However, it's understanding what is healthy for your body uh, and for your mind. Uh, when does it become too much? When is your health it's at stake as a consequence? And, you know, I, I got myself into a lot of trouble with that, got very skinny and, and my hormones just got totally jazzed. And a lot of the conditions that I had in terms of Lyme disease all came back and reared their ugly heads and, and so on and so forth. And I think that it's it's just a really, really difficult, delicate subject matter. And yeah, it's it's just not an easy one at all. So we sort of, we definitely delve into some of the warning signs of, you know, do you have kind of potentially an eating disorder or disordered eating or what do any one of those things mean? And how can you seek out help or how can you help a friend or look for the warning signs? But as a female athlete that has gone through it and continues to go through it, I really yeah, I think it's more prevalent than than anyone would admit. It's, it's at the basis uh, for a lot of behaviours that pretty much I would say probably 70% of our athletes deal with. Yeah. And in fact, in men as well. So I work yeah. in men's professional cycling and and the incidence, or I should say the prevalence of disordered eating in that world as well is astronomical. And it's not recognized, it's barely diagnosed, and it's managed in to the best extent that the folks involved in cycling can or do with the skills that they have. So it's a tremendous problem. And, and you know, the hallowed watts per kilo is such about a powerful incentive to get better, but it also can be many athletes undoing. And so we're trying to, you know, you're trying to find the line between you know, getting being as lean as you can without it compromising other aspects of your health or you're periodizing your weight so that you recognize that being at your racing weight is not sustainable and being in a chronic energy deficit is really detrimental to lots of other aspects of your health. And it's just not conducive to having a long career. So, or, or you know, a part, having it, being able Healthy to do life. it regularly. So that's the sort of the, the tightrope you're always trying to walk. But there are some things about, you know, just how you talk about your body. And one of the big things that we found in the, in the psychological research is about around fat talk. And fat talk is essentially around the way that we talk about our bodies with other people. And most of the research has been done on women, not because they experience it more, but just an artifact of the fact that maybe they're more likely to admit to it or they're generally a little bit more uh, emotionally articulate with the things that they feel and, and so on. So fat talk is the way that you talk about yourself. So for example, if you say, oh my God, I fit you around your you know teammates or your friends. I feel so fat. I mean, look at me. You, look at you. Look at you. are so skinny. No, shut up. Yeah, no, I'm not. If I just lose. And so you have this discussion that's kind of part joking, but part self-deprecating and 
And what we know is that this actually has, it's cathartic in one sense, that it feels good to kind of get some of these things out there. But in the long run, it's actually quite destructive to your the way that you think about your own body. It reinforces or, or perpetuates people striving to, to have unhealthy dietary habits, or it gets them to be more self-critical of their own bodies because you're having more of a social comparison. So what we suggest is not that it to pretend it doesn't happen, but to try and have strategies in place where you either change the subject or you divert or you try and channel it into less about what your body looks like, but more about what your body can do. And I'm a huge believer in focusing on the body type that you have based on the training available and genes and all the other aspects that go into the shape that you are. But seeing that as what your body from a performance perspective, what you're actually able to do with that body, what it enables you to do, what it makes you more robust against, what it makes you more protective against, what it makes you, uh, you know, uh, stronger for and so on. Uh, and, and always keeping the focus on what you can do versus what it's not enabling you to do is a, is a much more potent strategy than always feeling as though that you need there's some deficit that you need to kind of remedy. Yeah, definitely. And also the the positive relationship with food. I mean, I personally can say that I've struggled my whole life with negative feelings around body image and anxiety around food and the whole nine yards, just like I'm sure almost everybody has. And something I've really worked on is instead of looking at food and saying this is bad food or this is good food, I've worked on saying this food is healthy for me. This food is going to enable me to be stronger and this food is a treat and trying not to feel guilty around eating a treat because whenever you have guilt and shame and all these other feelings tied up around food, which is just a thing, it's an inanimate object. I think yeah. it's important to work on your mindset around what you're putting in your body and then also what the number on the scale says. Like the number on the scale isn't a judgment on who you are or how fast you are or any of those things. It's just a number on a scale we attach all the thoughts and, and judgments and everything onto that number and say whatever we want to say about ourselves. So like for right. me, I try, I, and this is something I've been working on, especially this year is like, I used to weigh myself all the time and it caused all this anxiety. Yeah. So now I weigh myself, but not every single day. And the number I, I try to focus on, am I, am I doing healthy things on a daily basis to make sure that I feel good instead of how skinny am I? Right. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to attack that. I think having a support system around you is, is really important. The right kind of support system that's going to help you get to better behaviors. Or, you know, I, I like to see what we consider to be, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to get skinny. I'm going to I'm going to restrict my carbs. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. You know, and, and I kind of put those things in the box of bad behavior. And then I'll put other things in the box of good behavior, which is, uh, you know, lots of sleep and uh, good nutritious food and you know not letting myself go too hungry or not stepping on the scales they're actually good behaviors and so I'll give myself points and rewards for that uh, so it's kind of changing your outlook on how you perceive certain things um, and having a support network around you that can help you with that but also as well what you know we talk about in the book is a, an element and we only really talk about it actually in terms of racing uh, or in training but having an alter ego uh, where you're essentially adopting, you know, sort of the character traits of, um, you know, someone else or something else or something that inspires you uh, to get out there and, and overcome certain aspects of your personality. So on race day, for example, my alter ego is called Paddy McGinty and he's like, a, you know, MMA fighter and whatnot. But 
you know, strong and tough and always gets up after he falls down. But I've started actually doing the same about my eating in terms of my relationship to food and how I approach specifically rest. I've started to create an alter ego that is like my rest and rejuvenation alter ego. And I start to look at other people that are really good at it and really enjoy it and people that are really good with their food and really don't feel guilt or whatever it might be or certainly perceive that they don't. And I start to adopt some of those traits because at least if I don't feel it inside, if I pretend that I do on the outside, there's science that shows that we can actually influence how we feel on the inside by things that we do on the outside. So interestingly, I have an alter ego for my approach to food and rest and recovery. That's awesome. That's a really good idea. I did read about your alter ego for racing and I, I really enjoyed reading that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of funky, but you know, it just sort of struck me actually. I would have said like literally a week ago to have one for, because I, I just, I, I really see this with all of the athletes that I coach and a lot of my friends. We see recovery is bad. We see rest is bad. We see moderation is bad. We see doing nothing is doing nothing like you're not achieving anything. And, you know, it's trying to flip that on its head. And, you know, seeing that is is a wonderful part of having a good performance. And I now look at things like a taper week as an enjoyable thing. It's a real chance for my body and mind to get ready for what's ahead, to absorb and build and grow and all of these positive sort of, uh, you know, affirmations or associations rather than negative things like I'm going to get fat, I'm going to get slow, I'm going to get stiff, I'm going to, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just kind of a, a different approach to it, but something like, oh my gosh, so many of my athletes just struggle with rest. They struggle to have a rest day. So really kind of talking through a lot of those aspects, I think is helpful. Yeah. Something that my husband's done that's been really helpful for me actually is the frustration around when you go out for a workout or a ride and you want to feel good and you just don't because you're still fatigued for whatever the reason right. might be. And a lot of athletes right. will look at that and, and I, I mean, of course, myself included, will be like, oh man, like I'm so weak or I'm so tired or what's wrong with me or whatever. But my husband right. says, no, like today you're, you're still getting stronger from your last workout. Or like if you're resting, right. it's like, no, that, that, this is just a sign that you're still getting stronger right now. And this is a positive thing. So you know, reframing that is, is helpful for me. But, but Simon, I want to ask you about the whole idea of reframing, because you mentioned some comments about positive psychology, and a big part of that is reframing things in a positive way. So what is a healthy way to reframe things in your mind? And what's an unhealthy way to do it? Yeah, so I think that well, psychologists think of reframing as, you know, taking the same information and just putting a spin on it or looking for alternative explanations that it that maybe counter or oppose the one that's your initial gut feeling of what it means. And it's actually a cornerstone of a lot of psychotherapy. In fact, something called cognitive behavior therapy. One of the cornerstones of it is that you confront irrational uh, thoughts that you have and you replace them and you recognize that you're having them and you replace with more positive or factually or factually based or rational alternatives. And so the first thing we need to do is to recognize when we're having things or experiences that are irrational. And so on the one hand, you can have the classic reframing is, you know, the morning of a race and every athlete will tell you that it's not very enjoyable, or most athletes will tell you it's not enjoyable. Why do I do this to myself? Why do I put myself through this? You know, <laughs> the, the nausea and the shitty sleep the night before, and or and the grumpiness and the short temperedness with your partner, and all the stuff that makes us into 
you know, we don't even like ourselves, never mind other people. And, and yet we do this to ourselves. And so some people, they give up the sport because of those things. And so things like, you know, why am I constantly needing to, you know, go to the toilet and why am I having clammy hands or why do I feel so nauseous? And all of these reactions, these physiological reactions anyway, are designed to make us actually faster and more aggressive and and more able to escape from predators. That's why we have. So one of the reframing things is to take each of these symptoms in turn and to focus on what it's actually doing to your body, whether it's, you know, hyper oxygenating your blood or giving you sweaty palms is giving, we think is there to give us a better grip. Should we have to, you know, our fingers so that we can actually feel objects that we need to manipulate and, and, and light and having, you know, needing to pee and poop all the time is making us as light as possible. And, feeling nauseous as or might, you know, lack of blood flow to the stomach. That's good. I want all the blood flow to my muscles and so on. So reframing physical things is a real important part of the anxiety response. But in terms of the feelings and thoughts we have about ourselves, where we're, we doubt ourselves or we worry about failure or meeting up to expectations. The first thing that we ask people to do is to, is the sort of the, give it a professor brain audit is to say on what, is there any factual basis that this thing actually could come true? So it might be as simple as saying, I'm worried about being embarrassed or coming last in this race. Okay, is there any evidence that you may actually come last? And in some instances, the answer is, yeah, absolutely. You've shown nothing so far in your history that can suggest that you're going to do anything other than come in the bottom three. So we're not trying to bullshit our brain and convince us that we're suddenly going to turn into superheroes overnight. But the, the big question is, if you then say, yes, this could happen, is to then ask yourself, so what? So what if this happens? Let's look at actually and break it down. So if I do come, you know, if I am at the tail end of a race field or if I, I do show up and it's clear that I, you know, I don't know how to fix a flat in a race and I'm going to I'm going to look stupid. So what can I do? Uh, so what if that happens? And so we ask people to come up with some strategies or coping skills or th- whether that's things that they say to themselves or things that they do or where they ask other people that would be like what, how you would be as a coach or a teacher, as a parent, being instructing someone who's just learning the game too. So, and, and what you find is that often some of our fears are based around worried about an event that either may not happen or if it does happen, isn't nearly as catastrophic as we've built it up in our heads to be. So coming last in a race or not being able to, you know, uh, keep up on a group ride or fixing a flat and everyone waiting for you to fix it and you really don't know how to fix it. What can you do in those situations? How can you, and one thing you can do obviously is teach yourself some skills so that you are able to get out of that situation, but also learn and practice how to ask for help and how that you don't excuse the fact that you're just learning this or just in a new environment so you're not, you know, familiar with it or if you're like uh, uh, competing as uh, your level or Leslie's level is when you're worried about letting sponsors down or contracts being renewed and you say, well, actually, you know, if I don't have the race I want and then sponsors are going to be really, you know, they might not renew me for next year. And then we'll say, well, actually, no, I, I know that's not true if I think about that. And of course, some sponsors may be like that, but the lot that we know that that's rarely likely to happen because what sponsors are most interested now is being a good ambassador 
for the philosophy of their their business and their product. So how can I I can contribute to how my sponsors, you know, sponsors me in many different ways, not just in whether I get on a podium or not. In fact, that's often the last thing that the sponsors often cares about. So as you go through this process, we're using facts and logic and rational thinking to counter some of the nonsense that our brain feeds us because it's trying to get us to run, hide or or fight. Yeah. Oh, man, I love this. Like, I want to just sit here and talk with you guys all day, but I can't believe that our time is already up. Um, (laughs) Is there anything else you guys want to say about your book for everybody that maybe we didn't touch on? No, I think if you are alarmed by swearing, don't judge a book by its cover. It's a general life lesson in general, I think, you know, to not judge a book by its cover. But (laughs) but I think also that... uh, but to read, we put the title of each chapter on the back cover and we urge people to, even if you're, you're just interested in maybe buying the book, read the back cover. And that's, you know, you can see that on Amazon or wherever. And you look at the chapter headings because the chapter headings are words that athletes that we've coached or consulted with have told us how they experience the problem. And if any of them resonate with you of these 13 then give it a chance because in each one, we unpack the psychology, we give you exercises and worksheets, and then we take a real athlete, one of our own athletes, as a case study of how we've dealt with that issue with them. So it's a question we're trying to meet the athlete where they're at. And if you are short for time or you just really don't like reading, then get the audio book. If you've got a trainer session or a treadmill session that you're really not looking forward to as we enter into base mileage, then it's a great way to break up a session and to listen to some of these things through your ears instead. So give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Audiobooks is how I primarily consume my reading, if you want to call it that. But I actually got the paper copy of your book because I really like the access to the worksheets. And I do think that it doesn't matter who you are or what level you're racing at, or, or even if you're not even interested in racing, like a lot of people listening to this aren't racers. They just are people that love mountain biking there's always something in there for everybody and that can be applied to any number of situations in your daily life. Yeah. So, you know, when people say, is this book for me? We say, answer this one question. Do you ever have thoughts and feelings that you don't want? And if the answer is yes, then there's something in the book to help you with that. And for some of us, it's about really helping us become better mountain bikers. And for others, it's dealing with, you know, our home life or our work life, but the concepts generalize really nicely to other situations that terrify the crap out of us. Yeah. And the book also has scenarios where you can help other people. Like if someone in your life has an eating disorder or unhealthy relationship to exercise, you guys offer solutions as to how to be a supportive partner to somebody who is having issues with that as well. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Cool guys. Well, where is the best place for people to find you and stay in touch with you? They can contact us through our website, braveheartcoach.com. And we have what we call a little smog test on our website where you can, you know, fill out some information and I'll give them a call, no strings attached, and just chat through their training and give them some advice. So that's one way. And then you can also order the book on our website as well as on Amazon and a bunch of other places. Awesome. Well, Leslie and Simon, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time and Really appreciate your effort and hard work that you put into this book and good luck on your book tour. Thanks, Sonia, so much. And we're big fans of yours too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Bye.
man, I could talk with those guys all day long. I was so surprised how fast that hour went. I think out of all the podcasts I've done, that hour went by the fastest. But I hope that you guys found some really great nuggets in there to help you in your journey as an athlete and as a person. And I personally think that the journey of self-awareness and always trying to figure out who you are and what your expectations are and how to manage what those expectations are and what other people think of you, it's a constant moving target. It's not going to be a finish line, but I think it really helps you enjoy your sport. It helps you enjoy your life better whenever you can really understand what makes you tick as a person and work on that tree, that tree with self-worth, self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-efficacy. And those are always things that we can work on that not only make us perform better, but we feel more calm and steady and happy in our lives. So I, I just want to publicly thank them for writing this book because I think that it is going to be really helpful to a lot of people. And maybe it's just the start of your journey of figuring out what those things are. A lot of time coaching is so focused on the physical aspect of things, how many intervals you're doing, how many watts you're putting out, how technically good you are on the bike. But really at the, at the base of the pyramid is your mind and how are you going to be able to go through a race or deal with difficult situations if you haven't started the journey of training your mind. So I think it's really great that especially now there seems to be a much bigger emphasis on mental health as an athlete and as a human being. Speaking of human being, how are you guys handling the holiday season? It's coming up. For me, it's pretty exciting because that means that I get to go down to the Southwest, which is what I do every year to see family. And also we always go to Sedona to go riding. So I'm really looking forward to going back to the desert and just getting my fill because I'm actually from the desert. I grew up in New Mexico. I'm a mountain lover, but I'm from the desert. Big thank you to sharing the show online with your friends. Your word of mouth is what helps this podcast grow. And if you're enjoying it, please leave a review on iTunes. That makes a really big difference in the search engine optimization on iTunes. And yeah, just telling your friends. And thank you so much for all of your messages and all the kind words. It really helps me stay motivated and it helps me really feel happy because I'm doing this show because I think that it makes the world better and bringing stories and expert opinions on a lot of different topics is really needed in our space. So thank you so much for listening and being a part of my community. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.